America's biggest city is served by three major airports. Well, there's kind of four. There's one more, but it's mostly for pilots and corporate bigwigs. But in any case, these four airports are less than 25 miles away from each other. That's a lot of planes and very little space. Not to mention you're contending with New York City's skyscrapers and their spires, one of which is actually home to the president-elect. And who knows what kind of special security precautions that entails. On today's show, we talked to one of the guys for keeping the airspace around New York running smoothly. Steve Abraham is an air traffic controller at John F. Kennedy International Airport, which brings in more passengers from other countries than any airport in the U.S., and thanks to its capabilities with big planes and helicopters, it's also going to be Donald Trump's home field once he starts commuting back from Washington every weekend. These seem like huge, monumental things to keep track of, if you ask me. But one thing we learned from Abraham is that there's a good way to keep it all straight. You only think 90 seconds at a time. I'm Kevin Dupsick, and this is How Your World Works. So for today's show, we have Steve Abraham here in the studio with us. Steve is an air traffic controller at John F. Kennedy International Airport in New York. Steve, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And I should also say, James Lynch is joining us. It's great to be here. Um, from what I could find, as of 2015 at least, it's the fifth busiest airport in the country. Something like 56, 57 million passengers going through in a year, and I think like over 400,000 flights. Does it sound right? Sounds numbers sound accurate. Yeah. And how many of you are there? Uh, at the moment, there are about 35 of us, um, eight trainees, so 27 of us who are fully certified to work all the positions. Okay, so that, that seems like a pretty heavy load. <laughs> uh, our staffing right now is the worst it's ever been. Yeah? Yeah. Um, in my career, anyway. Really? Yeah. Is that, would you say that's the case at most airports, or is that kind of a JFK or New York area thing? No, it's a nationwide problem. We're uh, at the end of the hiring bubble that we had you know, in the 80s when everybody was hired after the PATCO strike in 1981. That hiring phase went from about 81 to the early part of the 90s, and all those people who got hired are all about to retire or have retired. Yeah. So it's uh, trying to rebuild the workforce again. Yeah. Well, let's start there. What does it take to become an air traffic controller? How did you become an air traffic controller? So the hiring process now is very different from when I got hired. Uh, when I was hired in the late 80s, there was a written test given by OPM, uh, the Office of Personnel Management, which anybody could go in and take. Uh, you had, I think it was about three hours long in 45-minute blocks. Uh, the biggest challenge was completing everything in the 45-minute period in terms of a standardized testing thing. The questions themselves were not very difficult, but it was a matter of getting through them very quickly. Yeah, Math-based things, intuitive, knowledge-based, and if you had an unlimited amount of time, you could get through it and yeah. everybody get 100, but it was time-crunched. Uh, after you completed the tests, there was background check, interviewed people, the FBI made sure you were a good human being, uh, and then they would send you to Oklahoma City for their screening process, um, okay. where they taught you a simulated air traffic control environment, which is actually what we still use over the ocean, which is time-based air traffic control, um, over a two-month period, and 75% of the people who went through it failed. Yeah. Mm. Was that, would everybody go to Oklahoma City? Was that the one training center? That was the one training center nationwide, and uh, it, their attrition rate was about 75 to 80%, depending on the input. Wow. Um, once you made it through that, you were pretty much guaranteed a job. Um, the only question was where they sent you, because uh, you got hired by geographic regions. I mean, for myself, it could be anywhere between New York and West Virginia. Um, my first facility was Teterboro because I lived in New York. Yeah. And, you know, if you could live anywhere for the government, I don't think you would choose to live in New York because of the cost of living. <laughs> uh, so most of us who work in New York are New Yorkers and don't want to leave. Uh, 
and then you did on the job training there for me it was about a year and then you were fully certified yeah and then i transferred from there to kennedy about four years later had you flown through kennedy before you worked there oh yeah many times i mean my first uh my first flight as a child i think i was six years old and went from New York to London on BOAC, so. Yeah. All right. For most, uh, for most people who do your job, are they, like, were you kind of like a, like a flight geek or an aviation geek? Uh, most of, I, I wouldn't say all of it. It's about a 50-50 split, but I was an aviation geek. For me, it was a second career. Uh, I worked on Wall Street for seven years out of college. Had my midlife crisis early, according to my wife. <laughs> uh, so in my late 20s, I decided, you know, it was time to find something else to do, and I was kind of too old to be a pilot. Plus, I get motion sickness, so I said, let me go try this if I can't figure this out, I can always go back to the street because back in the 80s, it wasn't hard to get a job there, <laughs> unlike now. Uh, so yeah, I was absolutely an aviation geek as a kid. Yeah. So when you're, when you're sitting in the tower, what does that environment look like? And what does it feel like? When things are good, it's very relaxed. Um, when the airplanes are moving well and the weather is good and there are not a lot of inhibiting factors to doing your job efficiently, mm -hmm. it's like any other nor normal work environment. Um, when things inhibit the free flow of air traffic, it's completely different. Yeah. In the summer, uh, when we get thunderstorms, to the outside person, it would appear chaotic because the yeah. level of the level of requirement to get an airplane from point A to point B when the weather is bad is very different than when the weather is good. Uh, everybody has their own specific work environment. Everybody's plugged in wearing a headset. The job is very segmented. You know, there's an individual who's responsible for telling an air, it's called flight data clearance delivery, and that individual is responsible for telling an airplane, you're going to go from Los Angeles, I mean from Kennedy to Los Angeles. This is the route you're going to fly. This is the altitude you're going to go at. Uh, this is how you're going to leave the airport. The pilot acknowledges the flight plan, plugs it into their FMS commuter, and when they actually want to leave the gate and start taxiing, they talk to somebody else who's the ground controller, and the ground controller manipulates all the airplanes on the surface of the airport. Oh, interesting. Uh, and then puts them, at least puts the departures into a sequence to give to the local controller, who's the person responsible for putting them on the runway and clearing them for takeoff. Yeah. Um, at a busy time, we'll have two ground controllers, we'll have two local controllers each working individual runways. There's another person called the cab coordinator who oversees everything and coordinates between ground and local and relays restrictions and makes sure, yeah. make, ensures that there's still efficiency. Uh, and then a couple other people will have somebody called the CBA controller is the class Bravo, which is the airspace over the airport at eight miles around Kennedy. Mm -hmm. They'll walk all the helicopter traffic. Uh, not the jets you see coming and going, but you know the top one percent to get to the jet by helicopter. Yeah. Uh, or the news helicopters or traffic helicopters. And in JFK's airspace, NYPD Aviation has their has their unit, and they have eight or ten helicopters that are always up in the air. Uh, and then there's a traffic management coordinator who will coordinate delays, arrival plans, departure plans, and. I, for us, it's long-term planning because it's more than 90 seconds in advance because the controller's window of planning is about 90 seconds in advance because that's how we do business. Jeez. So all those roles you just listed, um, you're, you said at the beginning you're certified to do all of them. Do you have a preference? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think ground control is the most fun. I think everybody who works with me enjoys it the most. You, uh, it's, com it's the one position that has very little structure. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can, a good ground controller can make or break the airport. I mean, you know, you can take 10 airplanes out of the ramp and put them in a sequence that 
the last airplane is probably a 10-minute differential to departure from the first air from the last airplane if somebody else sequenced them. Yeah. So it's it's really the most integral part. It's the most fun. Yeah. Do you rotate through the positions, or are you now established in? You no, you wanna... you rotate. In fact, I'll almost inevitably you never work the same position twice in an eight-hour shift. Um, they try and ensure that you do that you rotate through everything, and you can never work more than two consecutive hours. And in general, it's really 60 to 90 minutes, and then you'll get 30 minutes off. So you're doing four or five jobs in a single shift. Yeah. That's crazy. Is it hard to switch from, okay, right now I'm a ground controller, I'm in that mindset, now I'm keeping track of local airspace. Is that hard to cycle through? As a trainee, you have to certify in every individual position. So, you know, we'll we'll take somebody who's brand new to Kennedy. They'll do six weeks in a classroom. They'll come upstairs, and then they have, you know, 85 hours of on-the-job training to figure out how to do flight data and clearance delivery. Um, and once they're certified and able to work that position on them, by themselves, they go back downstairs to another three weeks of training, mm-hmm. which is one week in classroom and two weeks actually in an air traffic simulator that we have um, where they can work ground in the simulator with fake airplanes yeah. uh, before they come upstairs and do it for real. And while they're training on ground control, they still get to work flight data and clearance delivery by themselves. Um, but the ability to change, you no, know, after you've done it for a while, you, you kind of flip the switch on and off depending on where you're going. Yeah. Um, also, I was just curious if ground control is who I need to complain to when I'm on the plane and the pilot's like, we're number 12 for takeoff. I, I think the person you need to complain to is marketing for the airline. <laughs> uh, I mean, truth of the matter, I, you know, the biggest capacity constraint at an airport is the runway, and only one airplane can use it at a, at a time. But, you know, if everybody schedules their flights to go from New York to L.A. at 5 o'clock. Yeah. You're going to be number 12 for takeoff. Eventually, you're going to be number 12 for takeoff. Yeah. I was wondering that, too, like, if there are certain flights, I feel like, uh, I'm from Rochester, a pretty smallish airport, and there are certain flights to or from that are almost always delayed. And that's on the uh, airline, correct? So it depends. <laughs> it's a nice positive answer. Right. So, you know, what I always tell people is the first flight of the day is almost always on time. Because the airplanes, the equipment's there from the night before, and unless the equipment magically breaks overnight, uh, it should take off on time. The... The capacity constraint or the the delay problem is multifaceted. Your airplane that you take to Rochester at 5 o'clock in the afternoon could have started in Rochester, gone to New York, gone to Florida, gone to D.C., gone back to New York, and then it goes to Rochester. Well, there are lots of opportunities for Mm -hmm. problems in the system. You know, if the weather's bad in Florida, all of a sudden your airplane leaving New York to Rochester becomes delayed. Uh, That's one reason. You know, the other thing is most airports go through peaks and valleys in terms of traffic. So if you're trying to arrive into an airport during a busy arrival push, uh, you can end up being delayed leaving from where you are. I mean, we routinely run a departure spacing program into Atlanta starting at 630 in the morning because by the time that airplane gets to Atlanta at, you know, 8 o'clock, well, there are 90 other airplanes getting to Atlanta at 8 o'clock. So we may have to keep that airplane on the ground for 12 extra minutes. And the sequencing into Atlanta starts on the ground in New York because that's how busy it is. Oh, that's really interesting. So um, you were talking about, you know, like especially if there's a thunderstorm in the summer or something, things get what looks at least to an outside observer as if it's chaotic. But I was curious. It's like you said everybody's sitting there. Everybody has their, you know, they're, they're plugged in. Are you all hearing 
everybody else that's talking on your headphones, or are you only hearing certain people? You're only listening to the traffic you're working. I mean, okay. the ground controller is only listening to the airplanes he or she is working on the ground. Um, and in order to transfer control of the airplane, at least in our environment, in the tower, there's a actually a still a paper piece of <laughs> paper strip. Yeah. You hand the strip to the next controller, and you give the pilot a frequency change to a different frequency, and then they are no longer yours to worry about. It's funny that you say that you're actually hanging off pieces of paper because when you're talking about optimizing flights and arrival and departure times, sequencing, I mean, this sounds like something that should be highly computerized, but you're handing off pieces of paper. They are trying to go to an electronic flight strip system. Um, they've just started testing it in, I think, three or four facilities in the in the United States. Yeah. I mean, technological change in, uh, in air traffic comes slowly. Yeah. It's also very difficult. The... You know, optimization of like a delay program. Uh, if you're trying to go from Los Angeles to New York, for example, and when I say New York, I mean Newark, LaGuardia, or Kennedy. Yeah. And each airport has different capacity constraints. And you know, your United flight who wants to go to Newark, and there's a Delta flight who wants to go to JFK. Well, the Delta flight when he gets to JFK is going to turn around and go somewhere else. Delta has no gate problems. There are no capacity problems at JFK at the time. And the United flight who wants to go to Newark, well, Newark maybe has a disabled aircraft and has a capacity issue. Mm -hmm. The problem is they both want to fly the exact same route from LA to mm. New York City because yeah. it's the most optimized weather route. So we put them on the same route, except the United airplane wants to do Mach 7.2 or Mach 7.4 and go slower because he really doesn't want to get to Newark early. Yeah. But the guy behind him, the Delta flight, wants to go as fast as he can. That's a very difficult thing to manage at altitude because there's not a lot of extra room. And everybody wants to do the same thing. So that's why all those delays kind of get managed on the ground. And the other thing is, you know, you fly faster, you burn more fuel. Cost the airline money. Yeah. They don't want to do that. And I imagine people are happier on an airplane in the air feeling like they're moving than they are sitting somewhere waiting to get to a gate. Nobody's ever happy in that movie. Nobody's happy. Nobody's happy sitting still. Pilot's not happy. Passengers aren't happy. And trust me, the unhappiest of all is me. <laughs> I do not want the airplane sitting still. Yeah. I, nothing makes me happier than getting rid of another airplane because I know at the end of the night, they're all going to go. Yeah. Eventually, yeah. they'll all be gone. And if they're gone at 11, it's a whole lot better than they're gone at 1.30. Actually, speaking of that, uh, I, think it's, I think it's LaGuardia that has, there's like a I've been on the plane before flying into LaGuardia and we were delayed and they say, oh, we, we have to do something because that, like there's a curfew at midnight or something like that. But I've definitely never been stopped by that. Like they say that and then I land at one o'clock anyway. So the curfew is a Port Authority rule okay. in New York. Uh, and there are times that they will enforce it and there were times that they will give exception. Yeah. And when that happens, do they just route you to a different airport? They usually, depending on the airline. Uh, I'd say if it's United into LaGuardia, they'll go to Newark because that's where they have a hub. If it's Delta into LaGuardia, they'll come to Kennedy because that's where they have a hub. So you could be sitting there having all your planes all lined up, and then you get a call from somebody saying, hey, we got another plane that's going to come in. That routinely happens. <laughs> I, I, you know, we had that happen Monday night where we had a Lufthansa diversion. It was a flight from Frankfurt, I mean, from Houston to Frankfurt, who had a bomb threat. Uh, and diverted into JFK because they wanted to get on the ground as fast as they could. Wow. So on a flight from L.A. to JFK, how many people on the ground is the pilot being handed off to as he goes across the country? Probably talk to 30 different controllers. Really? Uh, yeah. He'll start out 
you know, in LA, the clearance delivery controller, the ground controller, the local controller. Uh, you depart LA, you talk to the Southern California Tracon. Southern California Tracon controller probably talked at least two of them. Then they'll get handed off to LA Center, and you'll go from LA to Albuquerque to Fort Worth to Memphis to Washington to New York Center, depending on where to flight. <laughs>
an approach in a LaGuardia called the River Visual, where they bring you up the Hudson River, you get about equidistant to Yankee Stadium, and you make a right turn and land over Manhattan and LaGuardia. Yeah. It very rarely gets used. Um, hmm. And that's probably why he was so excited. It almost yeah. never gets why, used. So why would that get chosen? Uh, was it late at night? It was, yeah. Okay, so the other runway was probably closed, 422, and it was the direction of the winds. And to get east winds and good weather so you could be in the parameters to use a visual approach, or just it's just rare for New York. And they don't like to fly the approach in that direction for a number of different reasons. Yeah. You know, efficiency on the ground and thing, and weather are probably the two biggest. Yeah. I mean, it was really cool. And he, and he was really excited. <laughs> <laughs> How different is... Um, you always hear that New York's airspace is just really congested and complicated. Um, so how different does that make your job from the person who's at the airport in Oklahoma City? Uh, best example I could give you is um, I had somebody comment to me that, you know, you guys, you know, Kennedy runs about the same number of airplanes as Charlotte. Mm-hmm. You know, why do you run so many more delays than Charlotte? I said, well, there are two big reasons. One's LaGuardia and one's Newark. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you depart a place like Charlotte, the nearest airport is Greensboro. So the airplanes can go off in many different directions and have no restrictions to climb. Uh, you depart Kennedy, you have to turn away from all the other airports because all three of them are doing the same thing at the same time. Yeah. That's the reason. I mean, the, there's no other place on the planet that has four busy airports so close to each other. Um, just, you know, even in Southern California. The fourth being Teterboro? Teterboro. Uh, even in Southern California where you have, you know, Long Beach, LAX, Van Nuys, all next to each other, all their runways are parallel. Everybody lands towards the coast. Everybody takes off over the water. You have the whole ocean to climb around, climb up and turn around. Uh, you don't have that in New York. The, air, the runways are all in different directions. Everybody wants to do different things, plus we have different winds. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, this, it's very different. It has, um, so since, since the election, President-elect Trump is in, lives at the top of a skyscraper in Manhattan. How's that impacted your job, or has it? Uh, there's a small TFR over Manhattan that we normally wouldn't let airplanes over. The effects are pretty minimal. Um, it's not, the impact to us is almost non-existent at the moment. Yeah. When he becomes the president, it may change. Yeah. Especially if he commutes to New York. Yeah. On the weekends. <laughs> uh, it would become a very, very different world. Yeah. Yeah, but that'd be a lot of fun. Not so much. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Air, Air, Air Force One is a very specific set of protocols that's different than anything else we deal with. How often does it land at JFK? Uh, it, with President Obama, every time he came to Manhattan, he came to JFK. Uh, the size of the airplane makes LaGuardia unusable. Um, so if he came to New York, oh. he came to JFK. And, and for, you know, we're very good at Air Force One movements. Yeah. Because um, we do them a lot. Yeah. Uh, and coupled with not the airplane, there's also the helicopter piece of the operation because when the president gets off the airplane in New York, he gets on a helicopter immediately and gets into Manhattan that way. So we have facilities that 
can handle it better, and it has less of an impact to the flying public coming into JFK than he would at either LaGuardia or Newark. Yeah, and when he comes, is uh, is it still just your same crew in the tower, or does like the Secret Service or somebody have someone they drop in? There are definitely different security protocols when he yeah. when he's there. Yeah, it's a different world. <laughs> Um, what is what is like the most challenging situation that you've had to deal with? Probably that you know for me the most memorable is I had a it was an Ecuadorian airplane that was supposed to land on one runway you know with aircraft accidents or mistakes or things mm-hmm. they always there's a thing called the Swiss cheese model and all these things have to line up in a row to actually make the accident happen so this is as close as I've ever come to the Swiss cheese model lining up. Um, 11 o'clock at night, our ground radar system had failed 10 minutes earlier. And if it had been an operational, the radar would have told me this was about to happen. And it wasn't. <laughs> um, we were about to do a runway change. So there are extra complexities going on. Because it was the end of the night, we were kind of at skeleton staffing. And I had an Ecuadorian airplane that was supposed to land on one runway, the arrival runway, and he tried to land on the departure runway. Oh. Yeah, it was bad because there was an airplane sitting on the departure runway at the time. Um, Geographically, the way the tower is laid out, when you're working local, you look east, Mm -hmm. uh, and all this happened behind me. Oh, my gosh. So... You know, I'm just kind of looking at the radar, and I'm trying to do a couple of different things at once. And the window of opportunity from this to be going to being a completely smooth operation to bad is probably about seven seconds long. Yeah. Because he flies the base leg a mile from the departure end of the runway, and very much outside the paradigm. The 75 or 200 airplanes in front of him all done the right thing, and he decided not to. Yeah. Um, and he went to try and land on top of each on top of somebody. And well, so what did you do? Sent him around at the very last minute. Yeah. But the problem was the departure was rolling and he was going around, so there are two airplanes kind of flying on top of each other. Whoa. Yeah. That, that, <laughs> I can't even imagine. Can the passengers see? Do you think the passengers notice what was happening? No. No idea? No idea. I think that's the best place to be as a passenger. Yeah. You oh. Don't have, you don't have control? I don't want to know. Don't want to know. Do, like, so have, have James and I been on lots of flights that have had scary things happen but we just had no idea or is it or is stuff like that really rare yeah the odds are in your favor yeah uh, we don't the system's really the system's great I mean in terms of the in terms of the number of airplanes we move on a daily basis things don't go wrong um, you were talking about in this situation with the Ecuadorian plane that you know the 150 or 200 planes that came through ahead all sort of did the same thing and did it correctly when you're dealing with that many sort of short regular events how do you not get like, you know, highway hypnosis or the thing where you like read over five sentences on the page and realize you didn't absorb any of it? For us, mistakes, most air traffic controller mistakes happen when you're not busy. When you are busy, you're truly very much engaged. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I like to say one of the best traits in a controller is, is a great 60 second memory because you take all the information in the first 60 seconds, then it's over and you throw it away and there's a new 60 seconds to absorb. Uh, and I think that's how you kind of prevent that drift. You don't, every 60 seconds is different. It really is. I mean, the airplanes are different. The airlines are different. The, the responsibilities are different. The separation is different. So that's how you, you know, don't get lulled into a false sense of security. Yeah. Because all of a sudden, you know, 
for example, between arrivals, you know, you'll go from needing five miles behind the first one to three miles behind the second one to four miles behind the third one, and you're always trying to make sure that it's exactly five, exactly three, exactly four. Um, and you can't have 2.99 or 3.99 or 4.99 because that's a mistake. Yeah. So my last thing, and I'm sure you'd ask this family and friends holiday season, but do you have any air traffic controller holiday season traveling tips, times you don't schedule flights? Very good question. First thing in the morning is a good time to fly, probably the best. Um, I tend to, and this is more for the summer, I never fly in the afternoon in the summer. Um, I try and avoid routings that require me to change planes because every time you land, it's an opportunity for something to go wrong. And I don't mean that from a safety standpoint. I mean that from a connecting standpoint. Yeah. Um, I tend to avoid trying to fly through places that have ice storms. <laughs> it, it, truthfully, because, yeah. you know, snowbound airports, you know, the Chicago's, the Denver's, the Minneapolis's of the world, they're used to snow and they know how to deal with it. Yeah. Ice in Dallas, ice in Atlanta, they're not used to it and not prepared for it. So that's yeah. my, uh, my two cents. Yeah. And, the, you know, one of the great advantages of living in New York, you can get almost anywhere without changing planes. Yeah. Wait, okay, I thought of one last question. Is Kennedy the best airport in the New York area to fly into and out of? Well, you know, of course I'm going to say yes. I, so, so I would say yes for a number of reasons. One, we run, though we're delay prone, we're <laughs> less delayed than LaGuardia or Newark. Um, we have longer runways than both LaGuardia or Newark. So if something does mechanically go wrong with your airplane, there's a greater opportunity for pavement. And pavement's a very good thing when you're an airplane. So that's our show. Higher World Works is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Jesse Wright Mendoza. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Eddie Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes, and while you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And by the way, don't forget to check out our sister show, The Most Useful Podcast Ever. If you want to read more about air travel, check out popularmechanics.com podcasts. And while you're there, don't forget that you can subscribe to the print and digital editions of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 for one year. I'm Kevin Dupsick. Thanks for listening.